You are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. I grew up in a family with four, four kids. So I have a brother who's older than me and two sisters who are older than me. And I'm the youngest, but somehow not spoiled at all. So that worked out really good. My dad um, was a guy who made life a lot of fun. He was funny. He was kind of a comedian, and he would always tell jokes and stories. We thought he was funny, but he had some stories that he just told, you know, too often. You know what I mean? And we heard a lot of those jokes over and over again. I, I remember one of the jokes that he would tell went like this, and, but there were hundreds, thousands of them. But he would say, uh, there was a lady walking home from church one day and saw a neighbor who did not go to church and said to her, you should have gone to church today. You really missed out. Oh, really? What did I miss? She goes, oh, that preacher preached today. Really? He preached today? Oh, he preached up one side and down the other. He really preached today. And finally, the neighbor says, what, what, what did that preacher preach about today? And the lady thought for a moment and she said, you know, I don't think he ever did say what it was he was preaching about today. <laughs> you know, um, if I try to be funny with you guys, uh, I have to be funny. You, you don't just give me a lot. You know what I'm saying? In the first service, that's a leg slapping kind of laugh. You know, I mean, heads are thrown back. It's, you know, so here's the deal. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to preach about today right now. Okay, you ready? So after Jesus' earthly ministry and he was crucified and he was resurrected from the dead, Before he ascended to go to heaven to be with the Father, here's what he says to his disciples. I want you to go make disciples of every nation. And I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And I will be with you through this whole process. Now, if what you just heard translates somehow into this, okay, then I should go to my local church and find somebody that needs to grow in their faith and needs propping up a little bit. I should maybe try to invest in that person. That's not what he's saying. It's not that that's not a good thing to do, but that's not what he's saying. He is saying, I want you to go to people who have never heard about me. I want you to go to people who don't know me. I want you to go to people who would not say that they are Christian. And I want you to tell them about me. And once their heart is turned, okay, once they become convinced, then I want you to baptize them. And after you baptize them into the community of faith, then I want you to begin this process of discipling them, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded all of you already. And I will be with you in the process. So, there's a guy in the New Testament whose name is Paul. All right? And when he comes to know Jesus, a guy who has been trying to stamp out Christianity, keep it from advancing, when he finally comes to know Jesus, and he has this experience on a road to Damascus, and God changes his heart, he takes this commission with incredible seriousness. And finally, he comes to the place in his life where he says these words. The important thing. The important thing, okay, is that Christ is preached. 
So grab a Bible, if you will, flip it open to the book of Philippians, go to chapter 1, and let's go to verse 12, okay? Chapter 1, verse 12. Now, you probably remember from last week that the book of Philippians is written by Paul back to the people who make up the small congregation in Philippi. A few years earlier, he was there, and he preached Jesus to them, and people became convinced Their hearts were turned, and he baptized them. And those are the people that started the church. They're under persecution. He's writing back to them, probably dictating a letter. And he encourages them in these ways. He he says to them, you know, I want to thank you for this gift that you have sent me. Because they sent him some money to help support him while he was in prison. Because in those days, in prison, if you ate, it was because your family or your friends brought you something to eat. So thanks for the gift. It means a lot to me. And he also said, I want you to know that Epaphroditus, you've been worried about him. You heard he was sick. He's better, and he's coming back home to you. That's a good thing. And then he just says, I want to encourage you because I know you're facing persecution. And then he says, let's all get together here. Let's live and work in unity. Because together, we can accomplish a lot more than we can accomplish when we're not together. And so let's go to verse 12, okay? Now, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. I know I landed in prison. I know that's not ideal, okay? It's not what I was hoping for. That's where I am, though. But here's the good news. Even though I'm in prison, it has served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. So... Everybody that works here at the prison, they understand that I am in prison because of my faith in Jesus. And so the message of Jesus is going out in that way. Also, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. And so the people around me who are Christian, who aren't in prison, somehow my being in prison has caused them to straighten their backs and lift their chins and preach the gospel without fear. And so I know it's not ideal that I've landed in prison, but guess what? God is using it to advance the gospel. Now look at the second paragraph. It is true that some of these people who are preaching preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. But the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? Or maybe what can I do about that? The important thing. Oh, there is an important thing. (laughs) There's something that matters more than the other stuff matters. The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ has preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Now look at the third paragraph, and we'll be finished. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but it is more necessary that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and join the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. This is God's word for us today. I told you last week that I was going to be out of town some, and I was going to be traveling, uh, trying to encourage some pastors. And so there were um, four of us, five of us traveling together, uh, and we just kind of made stop after stop. And every day we were speaking to this new group of pastors. And one of the guys in the group with us is a historian. His name is Dr. Steve Hoskins. He teaches at Trevecca Nazarene University. I guess no shout-outs in the house for Trevecca. Just thought I would see. <laughs> he talked a lot about our history, about where we came from. And so he puts a statement on the screen, and I brought it with me, from Phineas F. Brzee. In 1895, this is the guy who was credited as the founder of the Church of the Nazarene, okay? And this is how he thought. We seek the simplicity and the power of the primitive New Testament church. So where, where are you going to do this stuff, Phineas? He says, the field of labor in which we feel called is the neglected quarters of the cities. We're going to the poor people. And wherever else may be found waste places... And soul-seeking pardon and cleansing from sin. The work we aim to do through the agenda of city missions, evangelistic services, house-to-house visitation, caring for the poor, and comforting the dying. To this end, we strive personally to walk with God and to invite others to do so. So he says, you know who we're going to be? We're going to be people that are intentional about connecting people with Jesus. And you know what we believe? We believe the gospel is for everybody, even the people that nobody else seems interested in. I listened to Dr. Hoskins talk about those early days of the Church of the Nazarene, how we went to the streets with the gospel, I mean literally. We would send our youth groups. Where's the youth group? A lot of you guys over here. So here's the deal. They would send the youth group out and send them downtown. And they would get up on the town square with their instruments. And they would sing music and one of them would preach. And they would sing really new contemporary songs that made the old people mad. Like, there's within my heart a melody. Jesus was sweet and low. Fear not, I am with thee. Peace be still. Through all of life's ebb and flow. And then we would go to the streets with tent meetings. We put a tent in every community that we could, and that's how we started churches. We, we established places called storm shelters that were open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, where people could wander in off the street and find Jesus. Did you know that in 1920, in 1920, the Church of the Nazarene already had 97 missionaries outside the United States of America? We were taking the gospel everywhere. 
And in those days, you would describe the church of the Nazarene as a movement. A mighty move of God where God was doing the unbelievable, the unthinkable. The church was growing like wildfire. Because we had a cause. There was an important thing. And the important thing was that we tell everybody we can about Jesus. And so, you got, you got Paul in prison, okay? And so he writes. So, if I'm in prison, I promise you, and I'll write you a letter, and I pray that that never happens, but I'm going to talk about how I'm doing in here, okay? I'm going to tell you what's going on and how I'm making it. That's the kind of thing that you would expect somebody to say. But Paul doesn't even address how he's doing. You know what he talks about? How the gospel is doing. Not once does he talk about, I'm doing okay or I'm not doing okay or whatever. No, he doesn't talk about how he's doing. He talks about how the gospel is doing because he has a primary goal. And the primary goal of Paul was that we might somehow tell people about Jesus. So look at me with both eyes for just a minute, would you? What is your primary goal? What is the important thing in your life? What is it that you would say, I cannot not do? I have a mission. I have a calling on my life. And there's something I cannot not do. I have one primary goal. This is what it is. You know what Jesus said it should be? Okay, gather in. You ready? Here we go. I want you to make disciples. I want you to find people who have never heard about me. People who don't know me. And I want you to tell them about me. And once their heart is turned, I want you to baptize them into this great community of faith, into this family. And then I want you to begin this process of discipleship. And I want you to teach them everything I've commanded you to know. That's the important thing, Paul says. So when I think about it, I just dream. And I talk to almost everybody I have a meal with, and I talk to my staff about it, and anybody that becomes an unfortunate victim of a conversation with me. And so I ask myself questions like, when, when do we have more people here who don't know Jesus than any other time? Do you know what it is? You might be shocked. Do you know what it is? You want to guess? It's Christmas Eve. I get out of my car at about 4.15 on Christmas Eve and I start walking across the parking lot and I run into almost nobody that I recognize. All kinds of people come on Christmas Eve. How many of you come here on Christmas Eve? So maybe a lot less than half of you. But did you know at the 4.30 service you can't get a seat? Some of our people come, no doubt. A lot of our people come. But lots of people that we've never seen before come. We've been dreaming lately. If that many people come and we make no effort to get them here, how many people would come if we made every effort to get them here? How many people are looking for somewhere to connect on Christmas Eve with a faith experience? 
And what should that service look like? We can still light the candles. We can still do the family thing. All of that is awesome. But what should it be? Should it be an opportunity for us to say, what if we needed three services or four services or five services? What if it's the greatest tool that we have in front of us to connect people with Jesus? But we're only going to do that. Listen to me. We're only going to do that if it becomes the most important thing. So let's think about Paul for a minute, okay? You're going to love this stuff right here. So here's the deal. Paul has three problems. Do you know what they are? Number one, he's in prison. You consider that a problem? I would consider that a problem. So if you told me, Rick, I hate to break this to you, but tomorrow you're going to prison, I'd be like, okay, that's a problem, you know? I mean, that is a big problem. See, if I told you, I know your future, and in three months you'll be in prison, you'd be like, no, 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 I can't leave my family, I can't leave my friends, I can't leave, no, 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 I can't. That would be a problem, right? Second problem. People on the outside are making it harder for him while he's in prison. So if you were in prison, and there were people on the outside making your life more difficult, you would say, now that's a big problem. Now I've got two problems. Not only am I in prison, but I've got people on the outside making it hard for me. Paul had a third problem. You know what the third problem is? He might get the death penalty. Whoa. They might take his life. Now that's a problem. Now see, I, I'm, I'm just, I, I don't want to make it light. I want you to grab the... You know, looking for a word. The heaviness of this. But if you were in prison and people were making it hard on you and you were waiting to find out if you're going to get the death penalty, you would say, I've got problems. What does Paul say? Here's what he says. I know I've landed myself in prison and I know that's not ideal. And, and, you know, obviously, if I could change that, I probably would. But let me tell you what's going on. Because I'm in prison, the whole palace guard and everybody else knows I'm in prison because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the people who are on the outside, guess what they're doing? They are getting excited and they are straightening their back and they're raising their chin and they're preaching the gospel without fear. Somehow, I don't get it, but somehow it's put all kind of courage in them and the gospel is being advanced because I'm in here. How crazy is that? And so I'm okay with this. Well, how does he deal with the second problem? Yeah, I, I know some people are trying to make it hard for me and all of that. And they're out preaching the gospel. And maybe for the wrong reasons and with the wrong motives. And maybe they're trying to push their own agenda and all that. But listen to me. I'm telling you what's happening. The gospel is being preached. And so I'm okay with that. Hey, Paul. Yeah? They might kill you. I know. Isn't that exciting? I might get to go home and be with the Lord because that would be better, wouldn't it? You know how many times I've been whipped and beaten and all of that other kind of stuff? That would be over. But it might be better if I stay because I could still advance the gospel if I stay. So it doesn't matter to me whether in my life and my death... I just want Jesus to be exalted and He can be either way. So it's okay. That doesn't matter either. 
And here's the way Paul thinks. It's hard for us to get our head around, but he says, okay, I've got an important thing. I have a purpose in my life. I have a goal. I have a target that I'm shooting at. And the target that I'm shooting at is that Jesus Christ is shared with people, okay? And if my problems do not keep that from happening, then I don't have a problem. So, you got problems, right? I got problems. So if I said to you, what's your number one problem today? You, know, you, you got one? If you've got one, you know what it is. You don't have to think long about it. If I just said, what's your number one concern, your number one worry, your number one struggle? If you've got one, you know what it is. So I'm just going to tell you, I've got one. When I get up in the morning and when I start to spend time with the Lord in prayer, I cannot not talk about that to the Lord. It's a problem. Heavy concern. What's yours? You got a list? (laughs) So I'm going to ask you a question. Are you ready for the question? That problem that you have? Would that problem keep you? Prevent you? From being able to invite someone into your life? Into your home? To a restaurant for lunch? Or a cup of coffee? To a faith conversation, would that problem prevent you from inviting someone to your church? Would that problem prevent you from inviting someone to come to know Jesus? And Paul would say, if that problem does not prevent you from doing those things, then you don't have any problems. Because that's the target, that's the goal. May I just stop and say that we're talking about a guy who is not living kind of on this plane. He's living on this plane up here. I would love to live there. Jesus, get me there. So here's what happens. When you and I have a problem, you know what we pray? God, why did you let this happen to me? Come on, man. Can you stop this? God, why did you let this happen? And Paul doesn't pray that way. Paul says, Whoa, <laughs> how are you going to use this to advance the gospel? I am watching and waiting, man. I am all eyes and ears. God, how are you going to use these dismal circumstances that I'm in to advance the gospel? I'm just waiting to see. I read this week theologian Tom Oden talking about going to Cuba five years after the collapse of the Berlin Wall. I expected, he said, to find the Methodist church in shambles all but gone. We only had five members 35 years earlier. When the imprisonment started, the persecution started. But he said, in light of all of Fidel Castro's efforts to put a lid on the church, I found the opposite. The church had grown from 5,000 members in those 35 years to 55,000 members. And what I experienced was was a spiritual revolution that I would compare to Acts chapter 2. I think about Christians being persecuted around the world and 
And you have these people who are always kind of saying, what's going to happen in the U.S. one day? And Here's what I know. That, that the church of Jesus Christ has done its best job at sharing Jesus with others in times of persecution. And Paul says, persecution is not a problem if it's helping me advance the gospel. Because I've got a target. I've got a goal. There's something I'm shooting at. I have a purpose for my life. And my purpose is to tell people about Jesus. Now listen to this. Here's the last thing I'll say, okay? We tend to want to think like this. If I didn't have problems, I would be joyful. But I'm not joyful, ladies and gentlemen, because I have some problems. You really expect me to be joyful in the midst of my struggles? I don't think so. But when I get my problems resolved and my circumstances improved, then you'll find a joyful person. But until then, I will not be joyful. And Paul says, I don't get that way of thinking at all. My circumstances do not determine my joy. My joy is based in the fact that the gospel is being preached. Because I have a goal, I have a target, I have something I'm aiming for. There is a reason that I'm living my life. And as long as that is happening, I am joy-filled regardless of my circumstances. I'm not living here. I'm living up here. Comfortable and easy comes and goes. I will not ride that roller coaster. My joy is not based on comfortable and easy and everything working out like I like. My joy is based on the fact that Jesus Christ is being shared with people and lives are being changed. Amen. Hmm. I kind of said that was the last thing, didn't I? I guess I better keep my word. So here's the deal. I don't want us to say, okay, well, that's it. And uh, nothing really is going to happen now beyond this point. I'm kind of done. We'll sing because we should end somehow. Uh, It's not how I'm thinking at all. I'm expecting something to happen. So I'll just be up front with you. When I've prayed about us ending our time together today, here's what I've envisioned. I've envisioned people like me and you saying... Okay, God, why don't my heart hurt for lost people? And in my own frustration, with my own lack of care for people who don't know Jesus, all I've known to do is just to seek the heart of Jesus. And my morning devotions have changed over the last several months. And, and I know that Paul said for me to live as Christ. This is my life. And it's out of that intimacy with Christ that he has a heart burning for people who don't know Jesus. And, and so my, my morning time has just changed. Lord, give me your heart. And help me to see people who don't know you like you see people who don't know you. And I've dreamed about you and I being here this morning together. Knowing there are people in our lives that we love. Maybe your kids, maybe your grandkids, maybe your, your brothers, your sisters, maybe your 
family members or neighbors or co-workers or close friends that you have. And, and you're probably the person who is most likely to share Jesus with them. If you don't, maybe nobody will. I've envisioned us praying for those people together this morning and, and praying that God changes our heart. And so, Kyle, why don't you come and not sing yet, if we do sing. And why don't we stay seated, maybe, if that's okay. And you can pray where you are, or you can come forward and pray. But I think, Kyle, that I would like first, let's just have some, some music, okay? Would that be all right? And, and let's just bow our heads, and let's try somehow... To be as honest with God as we know how to be. And if sharing Jesus with people is not the important thing in your life, then try to ask God why, God, is it not the important thing in my life? If, if this is what you want to be important to me, then why is it not important to me? And can you somehow give me your heart? And, and maybe there's people that God's going to be bringing to your mind as you pray. And people's faces are going to appear in front of your mind. And, and God's going to call you in that moment. Pray for that person and how you can connect them to Jesus. So if you want to pray where you are, you're free to do that. If you want to come forward to pray, you're free to do that. But be as honest with God as you can possibly be in this time.
blessing this morning. So here is, here is my prayer for you, that, that God the Father will bless you with the heart of Jesus for people who don't know him. God bless you. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at bethanynaz.org.